Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Philosophy of Sex. Welcome to the Philosophy of Sex, Long Play. I'm Caroline Moreau Hammond. Today, we're talking about sex and technology. The world's relationship with technology is complex and ever changing. Dating apps, the pill, and digital mass porn, to name only a few are technological innovations that have radically impacted our sexual lives and the way we relate to each other. But technological innovations often inspire fear. Socrates worried about writing replacing oral culture, and the hunter-gatherers probably moaned about the advent of agriculture. But who's to say they weren't right to moan? In the 1850s, during the Industrial Revolution, Transcendentalists warned about how the advent of a mechanistic and technological age could impact humanity. They suggested the mesmerization of the Western mind with externalities like technology and machinery created a risk of losing something important. During the Industrial Revolution, Henry Thoreau wrote, Our inventions are often an improved means to an unimproved end. It's all very well to invent or be able to afford new technology, Thoreau was saying. But we should treat new technologies with a measure of skepticism. Because however ingenious the invention may seem, it will likely have unintended side effects and even shape who we are as people in ways that are not always obvious or positive. Take the example of the phone. It's a remarkable human achievement, and yet, aside from sleeping and working, phones now consume more time of the typical Australian or American than any other activity. And I don't think you have to be an elitist to have doubts about whether this is really the best way to spend time. If we do not know what to do with technology, or the intentions behind its creation are misplaced, then it can be life debilitating rather than life enhancing. And given that technology is credited with having helped foster the world's loneliness, it makes strike some as perverse to look to more technology for answers. While all of this might be true, technology has also done an enormous amount to enhance our freedoms and choices for our bodies. It's given us the ability to have more orgasms, to have children, to not have children, and to connect with people outside of our usual social circles. Increasingly, it's assisting in improving the way we educate people about sexuality and creating new ways of managing sexual assault prevention and reporting. So in light of this, how should we develop technologies, particularly those that relate to human sexuality and intimacy? And what social problems can be solved by using technology? And why do technological solutions so often feel like a band-aid for deeper problems? As someone that often feels technology has distanced us from life's experiences more than it's brought us closer to them, I wanted to unpack my suspicions. 
Issues surrounding technology are often explored in black and white, so I've asked Bryony Cole to help me explore the grey areas. Bryony Cole is the founder and host of the Future of Sex podcast, where she explores the intersection between sex and tech. And since the success of the podcast over the last seven years, she has founded Sex Tech School, a program helping new sex tech businesses to commercialise. From interviewing owners of sex tech dolls to running sex tech hackathons, Bryony has been deeply involved in the sex tech industry since the early realisation of its potential value. She has a wealth of knowledge on how the relationship between technology and sex has morphed and changed and how it continues to do so. Obviously, one episode can't do justice to this enormous topic, and it's a topic we'll cover more in the future. But here's our first attempt. Enjoy my conversation with Brian Cole. So how did you become involved and interested in sex tech? I know it's something that you've been involved in for a while now, right? Scarily so, yeah, six years now. Just <laughs> thinking about how quickly things happen or I feel like it's it's I've been in it forever. But yeah, I fell into sex tech. I feel like I wanted to be a sex therapist. I was so disillusioned with my career. I think this happens like mid-career, right? And I was thinking, why? How did I even end up in tech? What am I doing? Let me out of here. And I thought I I'd be an excellent sex therapist. And Combined with that, I was currently working on a project around um, future of nightlife and interviewing a bunch of people about technology and nightlife. And I had this idea. I was like, oh, what about technology and sex? Like Mm. there's got to be stuff happening in that. And so I began this project of interviewing people who were either interested or knew something about technology and sex, which I later found out was sex tech, and that became Mm. the Future of Sex podcast. So it kind of just fell into it in a way before I realised how big the industry is and how much potential there is to do interesting work, creative work, and and really just like how much it meant to me as someone that grew up with fairly average sex education but always felt like I had to be small in body size and small in voice um, right throughout school, university, you know, into the workplace. This was sort of like the perfect alignment of all these things of personal meaning as well as just like disinterest and disillusionment of my corporate career um, to start a podcast. Yeah. I don't know about you, but pretty much, always, yeah. When, when life looks a bit weird, just start a podcast. And, and yeah. that's, that was my jumping off point for, for all these different things to do with the future of sex and the industry around it. Mm. Probably makes sense why so many people have podcasts now, right? We're all going through right? some form of crisis. Yeah, yep. The, the whatever life crisis you're in, just start yeah. speaking into a microphone and you just figure it out. Exactly. And how long have you had the show for? So it's uh, six years, seven years now, yeah, um, and sporadically on and off because so much of my work um, went in other directions, unfortunately. I love the podcast but then, you know, we started doing events and then I started to really look at the market and think about, well, sex tech in general is just way too big and no one's talking about it and there's so much innovation in there that, that I can help with or could get stuck into. And so the podcast has really been like this nice little anchor, but really about storytelling. And the rest of the work I do is about building and making and, and teaching people about the, the market. So the podcast still sitting there, hopefully it gets a yeah. more, more uh, seasons this year. Yeah, cool. 
And so what is sex tech? I feel like this is a term that a lot of people yeah. either will have heard of or maybe haven't heard of but have a rough idea of what it might mean. Mm. It means a lot more than a lot of people realize, I think. So if you could break it down for us, that would be great. Yeah, I think at first blush everyone thinks it's robots, which it is, but it's also I think an easy way to break down sex tech is to imagine these two buckets. One is sexuality and the second one is technology. And if we think about how those two terms intersect and think about sexuality as more than just having sex, sexuality is our identity, it's our expression in the world, it has to do with our health. A lot of our, you know, health problems come from sexual STIs, those sorts of things, as well as, you know, the way we move in the world and crime and violence and how that affects society as a whole. So if you look at that sexuality bucket, oh, there's a lot more than just an orgasm in there. And how does that intersect with technologies, whether that is sophisticated technologies that were, you know, the metaverse we're talking about now or mixed realities and AI and VR or simple websites. I think most people would know of some sort of sex app, maybe for your sexual health, maybe for sex coaching, sex education. Those sorts of things are good examples of sex tech. Right down to, you know, I still think the technology inside vibrators or lubes could still be called technology, even if in our minds we think about robotics. Um, technology is a tool to help us get somewhere. I think lubes and, and you know, sex toys also are included in that bucket when we talk about sex tech or those two buckets. So if we put those two buckets together or the compound of those two terms, sex tech, that's a lot of different areas that sex tech can cover and touch in all different parts of our life, from puberty to relationships to menopause, postmenopause. There's all sorts of ways that technology can help us or hinder us. And that mm. is sex tech. Yeah. Huge field, obviously, that covers a lot yeah. of different areas and would intersect with a, a huge range of areas of, of science and technology elsewise, I, I would imagine. So much. You know, I think Cindy Gallup is the one that calls it the next trillion dollar industry. It's such a broad industry that it's it's really hard to quantify um, in terms of how big that market potential is. Uh, you know, we used to call it the $30 billion one. And I think the latest figures are like $123 billion. Certainly since I've got started, um, we've seen the market potential go up, the figures go up, but also just the amount of companies and people, founders, innovating in this space has grown so much. And that's really exciting too, that people are now taking sex tech as an industry seriously, as seriously as they would fintech. And it's, it's quite similar. I think I think about it as, you know, those waves of femtech that happened like five, 10 years ago and no one was talking about it. And then everyone was talking about it. Then everyone was mm. funding it. I see sex tech <laughs> is very much like following in the footsteps of femtech and those mm. earlier industries. Yeah, and I think it's that's a pretty natural non-gendered progression of femtech, right? Like femtech kind yes. of very much um, traverses both of those those fields with vibrators and things like that, as as you say. Yeah, yeah, it is, and that's I think a real signal of the times too, and the way that culture and society and the way we talk about gender has changed so much over the last ten years as well. And people have been more interested in the research and just the, the, the like colloquialisms and the way that we talk about one another has changed. Is such a reflection in like now sex tech is more acceptable as a term as well, and 
you know, well-versed in gender, but I think we're also more well-versed in things like masturbation and sexual wellness as a, you know, term in the media. We see that a lot now um, Mm. that didn't happen a couple of years ago. Mm. I think it's part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because, you know, obviously this is a show predominantly about philosophy and we mostly talk about sort of cultural ideas and, and things like that. And I'm someone who's often reluctant to talk about technology despite the fact that I own a business that's a web retailer e-commerce. So <laughs> I should be very yeah. comfortable talking about these things. But I think there is such an interesting relationship between culture and technology and how that influences human intimacy and how those things interact. So that's really mm. what I want to dive into with you today. Oh, good, juicy stuff, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so They're so important and they, you're right, they both influence each other. Yeah. And I think where I kind of wanted to start with that was to talk about, obviously, sometimes people view technology as a replacement for intimacy as opposed to something that kind of helps it. It's more of a hindrance. What do you think about that and how do you genuinely sort of respond to that criticism or question, I guess? Well, I think I think there's always when we talk about technology, there's always and and people and humans, there's always two sort of camps, right? There's the utopian camp that are like, this is going to be amazing, and our lives are all going to be improved, and we'll never have to wash the floors again, and can get whatever <laughs> I want whenever I want. And then there's this dystopian camp that are like, it's you know, it's going to ruin us, you know, and we'll we'll stop being humans, and we won't have the magic of what makes us human anymore um, because of technology. And I think that the real answer is somewhere in the middle of that, and it always has been. There's certainly ways that technology hinders intimacy and, and sex tech does and takes away from it. And, we, you know, depending on what generation you're in, you might go, oh, my God, people spend so many t- so much time on their phone and they're away from, like, directly connecting with one another and then, you know, there's other people that would have the opposite view. I think there's plenty of examples of sex tech that has the potential to do good, whether that's in educating people or teaching them the skills for intimacy or perhaps helping them with painful experiences, whether that's alleviating pain during sex or, you know, better reporting systems for sexual assault. So there's definitely unlimited cases, I'd say, on both sides. What I think about intimacy in terms of it being a replacement, uh, sorry, technology being a replacement for intimacy is really examining what is intimacy because intimacy is so many things to so many people. And I really like that um, four dimensions of intimacy um, breakdown that is intimacy and looking at it as physical intimacy, emotional intimacy, intellectual intimacy and spiritual intimacy. And when you think about it like that, You think about all the different ways that technology could help, but also all the different ways that humans are so good at things that technology can't do. A lot of the time that is not physical, which I think people are so scared we're never going to touch each other again, but humans are really great at things that technology is bad at. Technology is great at algorithms and logic and rationale for the most part. Humans are really good at being creative and being imaginative and mysterious, at least for now. You know, maybe we talk about AI and into the future and things like that. Maybe not. I think we're becoming more and more bonded to technology as like an extension of us. But keeping those human elements is really important in those four dimensions of intimacy and remembering Mm. that 
technology is not here to replace. It's more like an accessory to accessorize. Just I think the simplest one is lube, right? We could all do with more lube. Our body can't produce that much wetness that a, a bottle of lube can. And that's a really easy example. I think the more tricky ones are like, oh, can, can technology replace emotional intimacy? Mm. And what does that look like? And what does that mean? So I, I always like to like go around the wheel and think about yep. the cases for and against. And there's never yep. a clear line to me of like, this is going to replace a hundred percent of us. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I mean, I think that's the case with most things when anyone says it's either this way or that way. The truth is usually somewhere in between those two things. I think to contextualize this for people more, there's some, in terms of the positive impacts, there's some really interesting examples around um, the sexual assault reporting and things like that that Mm. that you've mentioned. Could you talk a little bit about some of what's happening in, in that space? Yeah, well, I mean, personally, I just had the worst experience of trying to report uh, on campus at a university I went to of a, you know, a teacher. Um, There was no, first of all, there was no digital version of it. There was just forms and then there was people that I think in that stage were the worst people to to give the forms to and it went nowhere. And a lot of people have um, pretty poor experiences trying to, even if they go to report, which is a big thing anyway, work out the courage to report any sexual assault anywhere on campus or in a workplace. How do you make that easier? And then how do you make it, how do you remove almost, you know, we're saying humans being replaced or whatever, but how do you remove that human element of bias and people that are worried about the reputation of the workplace or the university and make it something that's a lot more easier for the survivor. And so Callisto is a a reporting tool that aimed to do that, that um, was developed for on-campus reporting and is now in the workplace. It's based out of the US. It's a really simple system that allows you, you don't have to identify the perpetrator at the time, but it will match up in the database other people that may have identified the same person and then trigger alerts at different times. It's really about using technology smartly and using databases more efficiently, which I love. And it's such a simple way to remove the the human, you know, bias and the human elements that make this such an awful process for so many people. And then you look at other cultures in the world and the way they deal with sexual violence and um, sexual assault, and it's so different too. You know, I think Australia and the US are maybe a little bit similar, but Japan, they had this really interesting UV stamp that was developed that you could use... <laughs> to identify perpetrators on the subway. They had a big problem, which is why they have gendered subways. I think it was two-thirds of high school teenage um, girls were being assaulted on the subways. And so they developed this stamp and you could stamp the person that, you know, touched you or whatever, which is really interesting to look at the behaviour as well of a culture of like, I don't necessarily think I would whip out a stamp in that moment and stamp someone. Um, but this, you know, UV stamp and you could see, you could see under the UV lights this, um, if people are marked in that way. And then across to South Africa, um, you know, the prototype that's not yet in commercially available was the Rape Axe, which again was uh, another sex tech that was designed to um, prevent rape and was developed by a nurse who 
you know, we're seeing so many sexual assault victims in the hospital in a country where a rape occurs once every 17 seconds. She developed this female condom that was fitted with barbs. So you would, you would wear it as, you know, inside. And if someone attempted to sexually assault you, it would get stuck on them and they would have to go to a hospital to get it removed. So there's all different ways that sex tech could be used. Obviously, it has a ton of like political, social, ethical considerations, issues and hurdles to go through for those things to become commercially available. So I think Callisto is probably the one where everyone could look it up and see and go, oh, this would be great. We should do something like that in a in Australia, for instance. Um, but the other ones are so sort of specific to those yeah. cultures as well and what's going on in that part of the world. Mm. But I think that's what, you know, good technology does, right? It responds to its environment as opposed to trying to broadly overlay something over a culture that it might yes. not actually be suitable for. Do you know with, with the UV stamp, mm. do they get checked coming out of the subway or how does that actually work in terms of once they've been stamped, what happens? That's a really good question and I don't know the answer to that. I think, you know, I, I need to go and see. The last time I checked they were completely sold out of this stamp yeah, right. and that was where, you know, it, I don't even know what, what happened because it wasn't like a regulated, you know, government-sanctioned thing. It was de- designed by a telecommunications company like a Telstra, which mm, is just like interesting. Wow. Yeah, and it's that's an interesting point which I want to circle back to later on around regulation of these technologies and how if someone does come up with a really amazing technology, how we can actually ensure that it's implemented. But we'll come back to that. Mm. (laughs) So obviously in terms of technologies like the ones you've just mentioned, also reproductive technologies and things like that, they've obviously done amazing things for us. What are some of the more negative aspects of sex tech that you've seen or the slightly darker side to it. Uh, You've spoken about obviously sex robots and AI and these things. And I think often people envisage that stuff to be kind of like a sci-fi slash horror film type scenario. (laughs) So what's, what's your experience with those types of technologies? And do you think they deserve the sort of negative label that's been ascribed to them? Well, I always put the onus back on humans for that. You know, I think that the technology is there as the tool or to be an accessory. And my experience with sex robots is fairly limited. I've looked at what they're able to do and I think it's amazing in terms of the technology. And often sex tech influences so much, uh, so many other industries, right? This is what happened with like um, online like streaming or um, payment processes and things online in the early days, either driven by porn or gaming. A lot of innovation always is. And so people that have got money, they're like, how do I have more sex? Um, how do I watch people have sex? That's really <laughs> where why I feel like a lot of the innovation comes out of the sex tech industry. But for sure there's, you know, with the sex robot example, I think it's super fascinating that they're able to to do what they can do right now, which is, you know, you can look at a, a robot head and it can talk to you, might be a little bit clunky. Um, there's fully customizable aspects of creating those robots, but they're not really robots yet. Like they're not <laughs> swinging their hands and their, their limbs and they're not walking around and that would be very dangerous if they did. But it's more sex dolls, which I think people have an aversion to and rightly so in some cases that, you know, they're 
they're being distributed and they're commercially available and a lot more accessible than a sex robot would be. And in that, it's really interesting. I think there's, again, two camps. There's a camp of like, well, this is wrong or it's made in the likeness of a child or a celebrity or something that's really this doesn't sit right with me. And then there's the other camp where, you know, sex therapists that I know of, like Dr. Marion Brandon is a good example of someone that would prescribe a sex doll for a patient that may have gone through some trauma, that's unable to bond to anyone else that wants to work on their emotional skills that are at, you know, the ground floor. And speaking to sex doll owners too, I really felt like I had, you know, we have an episode of this on Future of Sex and I really felt like I had so much empathy once I got to the human side of the story, you know, like why people would want that and that it wasn't creepy and shady and weird, but it was more a reach out for connection. But I think it's so specific. There's never a blanket answer. We can't say everyone is um, amazing that does this, but, you know, there is a bulk of this audience that would buy sex dolls that are probably pretty lonely. Otherwise you can get a fleshlight, you know, if you're just looking to get off. But it goes back to those four dimensions of intimacy of like not only physical but emotional, intellectual, spiritual. And a lot of the research that goes into dolls says they, you know, people, doll owners, um, idolaters is what they're called, um, can often ascribe personalities and and put on stories, full stories and backstories of the dolls, just probably like how we did when we were little playing with dolls, um, except these people are adults. Yeah, I just felt really emotional hearing those stories and going, I think these people just want to, emo- they want the emotional intimacy that we so crave as human beings. You know, there's so much more we can go into in to sex robots in the future. There's actually a very new film that's just showing at Cannes at the moment called Crimes of the Future, which looks at like more technology going inside our bodies and that futuristic scenario. But I think presently we're not really dealing with sex robots, but some of the worst, you know, applications of sex tech at the moment, I feel are like the old ones, right? Like the CD sex toy stores that like everything's just gone wrong that we're trying to replicate unrealistic genitals and put people on um, this train of like feeling bad about their bodies or feeling shame, hiding things, putting things away in a corner. The porn industry again is one that's not without, you know, so mm-hmm. much. It's a minefield in terms of yeah. thinking about thinking through the ethics of that and how much harm it's caused and also maybe how much people have been educated about sex when they didn't have another option and whether that's good or bad you know we could Mm. do a whole episode on that I'm sure (laughs) absolutely yeah I mean I was speaking to a Jungian psychoanalyst last week about porn and he very much came from the perspective that what people choose to consume with porn is very much a reflection of their sort of deep psyche shadow self which is a pretty interesting perspective and obviously as part of that he has some pretty strong ethical dilemmas with the way we sort of engage with porn as a form of entertainment when arguably it's it's more than that but I think Mm. it's it's interesting because particularly in relation to sort of the porn industry versus other areas of the sex tech industry I was speaking with Judith Glover I think it was last year I love Judith Glover Yeah, she's the best. (laughs) But we were talking about sort of the 
gendered differences in different areas of sex tech where her sort of take was that there are areas that are more tailored towards cis men that are more on the pornographic side. Then you have sort of things that are catered more to cis women that are sort of the hyper-feminized sex toy brands that um, you see lots of now. So I wondered Mm. what sort of your observations around some of that would be. Oh, I think you're right. I mean, and I think, you know, I think the future is that we go beyond that, right? So the future of sex is all about going beyond what is, massive quote marks, normal. You know, what's considered, quote, unquote, normal and cis, heterosexual humans being the the default, I think, there in most people's, like, um, fucked up cultures, you know. And so it it makes sense that that's where we've started with sex tech, but the potential is so much richer you know, for products and for services that cater to all these different types of experiences, preferences, orientations, genders, you know, it's just so much richer than what we're seeing today. But like, you know, I'm in two minds about it because we've just recently in the last like five years or whatever, since Me Too and Time's Up had this huge movement towards, you know, cis women speaking out about sexual assault largely, right? And But with that, it's also been coupled, if you can talk about sexual assault, you can talk about pleasure. And then we've seen this proliferation of brands that are catering in whether it's pastels or really design-led, um, you know, beautiful Aesop-like vibrators, those sorts of things. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's wonderful. Um, and then moving away from them being these really phallic objects to them looking more like museum-quality dildos they're still dildos they're still you know and they're still (laughs) catering to a specific body and what we see in hackathons which dr judith glover has been a part of and what we see in the school is just like this range of lived experience and different body types um, that may produce different products a great one is like clitoral suckers like why they all had the same size for so long and now we're seeing different sizes and like bodies are different and orientations are so different and they change and they're fluid. So I think for me, I go, okay, cool. Well, you know what's happened? Like we've seen a really good signal that we're more open to talking about this. I've never seen so many influencers spruiking vibrators on the internet, on Instagram, that like in the past two years, the pandemic, (laughs) it was popping off. People just couldn't get enough of those vibrators. So it's kind of it's a starting point for a conversation and it's a really it's moved the dial from it being very I think cis male focused around you know basically like the things we think of when we think of porn and like graphic like catering to this really graphic nature and this ideal sort of sexuality so I think that the needles moved and it's got so much more to go and different populations that can be involved in that or different communities that's what I'm kind of excited about. And I think the more niche we go, the more interesting the sex tech's going to be. Like if you can create something specifically for you, chances are someone else will be into it too, which is great. But like it's coming from your experience and it's not trying to please every clit on the market, you know. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> no, I really like that as, as a point because I think it's it's quite easy to get pejorative or judgmental over the different types of brands and technologies that exist out in the market. But, you know, there might be a select group of people that want to plug into VR porn and not have any human intimacy. But I don't think that that necessarily means it's going to be like the matrix, but porn. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, not everyone wants to do that. For sure. There's always going to be people that do, but there's people that like, you know, having trouble right now trying to, you know, masturbate or have sex with their partner that are more interested in, you know, what will happen in the elderly population or the disability community or they live too far away. You know, there's so many different things and I think we can't be so black and white about the future as just like robots and being plugged into the matrix. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's it, it goes the other way as well, right? You don't want sex to become generic to for there to be a, a, white, a right way for it to kind of look and feel. And I think that's that's kind of an an important thing. Mm, so important because I think that's you know one when we started the podcast, I feel like that was one of the questions I got the most. And I was talking mm. about the future of sex, and I would just keep getting these questions and these you know long emails from people. Um, am I normal? Like mm. this, this, and this happened to me. Am I normal? Or this, you know, I have this or this size, this or whatever it is. People are so concerned that they're not normal and that there's this concept out there of normal and everyone else has it and they don't. And we particularly have this around sex, you know. It's just like everyone else must know what they're doing or everyone else has a normal body and I don't. And I was so surprised that that was like the question that popped up the most or the concept that popped up the most is that we're all so concerned about there being this normal out there that we're not. Mm, yeah. And I think it, that's an interesting segue point because it does relate to the idea of sex tech sort of as a, as a tool, right? If, if mm. everything is normal, then sort of uh, these technologies are just tools that are available to us to, to enhance or adapt our experience in whatever way we want it to. Can you unpack what you mean by the idea of sex tech as a tool? And then I want to talk a bit about how far we can kind of push that idea. Ooh, I like that. I mean, for me, technology is simply a tool that allows us to do something. And, you know, I get that, you know, if you look up the definition of technology on Wikipedia, it will say the skills, methods, and processes used to achieve goals. So for me, I think about the the technology in sex tech is really just that. It's just allowing me to achieve something, whether that's I want to know more about 
my libido. I want to measure my orgasm. I want to have an orgasm. I want to, you know, get in contact with someone and feel them like they were in the same room as me and they're not. So for me, technology as a tool is meant to strip away the idea that technology has to involve computers and wires and really crazy things. And it really is just like, it's the vehicle to to allow us to go from A to B. Mm. So where I start to wonder about that idea of it as a tool is, as we were talking about at the start, the relationship between technology and culture. And when you start to overlay culture over technology and it develops this kind of feedback loop between the two almost where mm. culture is influencing the technology, then mm. the culture responds and influences what happens there. Does that start to change the idea of technology as a tool because mm. it's arguably adapting our behavior? I think a really good example of this is dating apps, right? Mm-hmm. Dating apps, they've changed so much in response yeah. to how we've responded to them. You know, yes. it's kind of like how they used to be a bit of a weird thing you wouldn't it would have been a bit taboo to engage with but now it's kind of weird if you're single and you don't engage with them so what would you sort of say to that yeah yeah there's this idea with technology called cultural lag where we introduce a new technology and then it always takes humans like a couple of (laughs) depends what what era we're in at this point I would say a couple of years to like mess around with it and adopt it and make it ours. And at the same time, obviously it's changing the behaviour of like people, yeah, thinking that's weird to meet online to now, you know, five years after dating apps are introduced, it's it's weird if you're not on them, right, and you're single. But also how much we've influenced it. So once that cultural lag, so the cultural lag happens and the behaviour yeah, adapts, but the, the other thing is the humans then, as you say, influence the the dating app and influence the way, you know, pandemic did, I guess, influence video dating and we can't, we come up with all this short-form conversation and we sort of influence the next round of dating apps and how, you know, video dating is now normal and it never was before. I guess um, we're constantly influencing each other and I think that's really true is that when you set out to create sex tech, you're setting out to, to solve a problem that you have but in doing so you may create more problems and more solutions at the same time so I don't think there's ever a solution for that I mean some people would call it evolution you know that that's the thing with technology which I think scares most people is there's no going back you know there's no going back to before Facebook there's no going back to before the internet anymore and so it's it's recognizing that New technology comes out, humans adopt it, humans fuck around with it and change it a bit, and then more technology comes out as a result and we're constantly in flow, like in even if we're resisting with developing like the way society goes. And that's why for me it's so important that there are some sort of guidelines or an ethical committee or an industry association or something associated with sex tech because otherwise, and you know, and there's some sort of, way that we can democratize the access to being a founder, to having the capital, to be able to create these products. Otherwise we have what a small room of white dudes creating, you know, <laughs> porn tools and then, you know, everyone else dealing with them, adapting them, and then they go back and create them. No. So I think I think there needs to be people with 
interesting lived experience, tastes, diversity at each step of the process in the technology. And that's really the tech industry as a whole, I would say. I don't think we're anywhere close to it, but I think that's the aspiration, isn't it? Mm, Yeah. And I I completely agree with that. I think where I find myself often getting frustrated in conversations around technology is that there's an assumption that it kind of has a hold over us and we're not really in control of how Mm. it's developed or treated within society or regulated or any of these things. And that's where I kind of start to think, well, hang on, we're actually in the driver's seat here, yet we don't always act like that's the case. (laughs) I'm uh, uh, so on board with that too, because there's some human out there that is controlling it, that is, that has got stuff to do with it. Um, Mm. Sorry, my post-it notes falling off my wall, bad technology. Um, (laughs) Oh no, but yeah, I I agree. And you know, in an industry that is so stigmatized, it's got full of taboo that people want to put it all in a dark room and shut the door. I argue that we've got to turn the light on and we've got to be able to work with these different companies, whether they are the biggest porn companies on the planet, right down to the people that have no money that want to develop a, you know, sex education campaign for rural areas. They're both really important. The one, the biggest ones are going to be able to create the shifts really fast and we need to be able to shine light on them and talk to them and I say work with them to create more ethical practices, to create more ideas that are just like not a bunch of the same people in the same room doing the same things and being shut off from the rest of the world. Mm. So I'm very passionate about people having access and power in the industry to shape it and to shape the future. Because mm. the alternative is really scary and no one wants that. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Next week I'm speaking with a surgeon from Sweden called Martin Dahlberg and he was having to perform all of these rectal surgeries to remove toys from people's oh, wow. asses. And so he was like, what the hell is going on with this industry that means I'm having people coming in all the time requiring surgery for this? So he approached the Swedish Standards Institute and worked with people like Love Honey and WeVibe um, to actually develop certifications for sex toys around this stuff. And that led to a new ISO certification for sex toys, which is oh, like a manufacturing certification for people that don't know and it's been implemented I'm not necessarily convinced that it goes as far as it could but it's still better better than the alternative but I'll find out from him if it's had a notable impact on the amount of rectal surgeries he's been having to perform that is fascinating yeah Yeah. and that just that just for me breaks my heart because it's like the lack of also education of people that you know, maybe don't know to use a flared base or something because, like, who who who's teaching that? No one's teaching yeah, that exactly. sort of education in schools and, like, or or parents or fat. You know, like, it's just yeah. There's so much. There's so much opportunity here from, <laughs> as you pointed out, manufacturing standards to like basic sex education that could really help us advance forward as a society. Yeah, and I think coming back to what you were talking about around having sort of an, an ethics or an ethical framework that guides some of the stuff, obviously you're always going to have different groups with different motivations, but trying mm. to have some kind of underlying understanding across the industry, what philosophies or social ideas or cultural ideas do you think 
should sort of underpin how we develop these technologies? What guidelines do you think that they should be subject to, irrespective of whether it's reproductive technology or a vibrator or whatever it might be? Yeah, well, I think starting out with not hurting people, others, is a good place to start. You know, these very, I think it doesn't have to be um, too too extreme or too convoluted, but starting with the point of like doing no harm onto others is always a good place to start from. And, you know, we talked before about this idea of nothing being normal. And I think having a more broader understanding of like diverse experiences matter is really key. It's something that's key to the school and the fund that we're creating as well is like incorporating different lived experiences into the future. And then there's just unlimited, you know, we could go through your podcast episodes, I bet, and identify consent and all these other things, you know, the ethical use of data, the practices that they have around technology at the moment, privacy and security, huge parts. But to even get there is just a huge, it's going to be a huge task for the industry because as it stands today, there is no infrastructure. There is nowhere you can go to other than I guess ISO manufacturing standards, but there's nowhere you can go that regulates the industry as a whole. We're so far behind on that, that even just thinking about it feels enormous to me in my head. I'm like, oh. (laughs) Yeah. Why, what's your feeling on why that's been the case? I mean, it's probably a fairly obvious question, but curious to hear your take. No one that has the money wants to do it and it costs a lot of money, you know, and that's why, you know, we need money in this industry at the more, I would say, grassroots level where it serves the interests of people that need that and less so at the top of the funnel where, you know, they already own a third of the internet anyway. So why why would we attempt to regulate it? In similar industries like the cannabis industry where things have changed at a government level and institutional level, they now have the money to do you know, things like industry associations and committees and ethical practices and start to work with governments around that, it just takes money. And unfortunately, a lot of people in this industry are just, they don't have the money right now. You know, it's not, even though we talk about it being this trillion dollar industry, it hasn't been realised yet. A lot of the money is still at the very top of the chain and not evenly distributed around people creating interesting Mm -hmm. products and services for more niche categories. Yeah. I think it's also it's also a problem that historically the industry hasn't been regulated because it's meant these large companies have been able to come in, make huge profits, and then there's absolutely no incentive for them to try and regulate themselves because mm-hmm. they can get away with poor manufacturing or just ethical practices along their supply chain. It's not really a concern that they have to have. But then, then that sets the standard for everyone sort of beneath them, right? On the lower rungs of the pyramid. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, it, it means that a lot of sex tech just gets lumped into an adult category, which causes a lot of hurdles in other areas of business because we Mm -hmm. don't have these standards in place. Makes it really hard to work with like general business providers, whether that's your email provider or your payment processor accepting payments through Stripe or Visa or something like that, you know, everything gets lumped. Even if you're trying to create a product that's like a dilator for painful sex or something like that, gets lumped into, no, you're porn, you're bad, we're not going to work with you. And so and so it creates this sort of chain of like impossible, yeah. <laughs> impossible innovation. Mm, yeah, I like that term. <laughs> <laughs> 
I like what you touched on sort of right at the start. We were talking about sort of the utopian ideal versus the dystopian fear, I guess. In light of some of what we've just been talking about, how do you think we should go about developing technologies? There's obviously the utopian kind of what Karl Popper said, there's the utopian ideal, which is more of a holistic wholesale change versus like piecemeal engineering where it's smaller steps and trying to understand the cultural impact of it as we slowly go along. I would probably argue for the latter approach, but I think we mm. often reach for the former because it's so tempting to think, well, if we had this technology, it would fix fix this problem or mm. remedy that. Mm. What would what would your take be? Yeah, I think I think I'm in your camp too of just like uh, the the slower process of like testing and not creating technology for technology's sake or for the mm. sake of some idea that it might solve something in the future without it having a test and a response. I mean, that's so much a part of the work we do with like the customer research we do at the school and making sure you've tested the market. That's sort of like just, I guess, startup best practice as well. Mm. But it's also just faster. It's just a quicker way yeah. to develop stuff. You're not trying to leapfrog anything or have these, you know, you can have a lofty ambition to create a shame-free, less judgmental society, and I'm certainly on board with that. But taking those, it, it's always going to take incremental steps to get there, and I think that's what's most exciting to me is when we can we can do that in collaboration with one another and we can sort of mm -hmm. move a bit slower because the people that have the tech skills aren't often the ones that should be making those decisions anyway, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's it's true. Do you feel that technology is appropriate for solving all forms of social problems. I wanted to, and to kind of unpack this it's question. It's a small question. It's a small question. But to help contextualise the, the huge question, I thought we could use Gatebox as an example because I've heard you talk about this before and I think it's, um, yeah. I became kind of obsessed with it when I learned about it because I was just so fascinated by it. I've spent quite a bit of time in Japan before as well, so just have an interest in that as a culture and mm. how how they've used technology to try and solve a lot of their social problems. Do you think that that's necessarily the right approach at like a baseline level of trying to resolve the issues? What would your take be? Yeah, so Gatebox, for, for listeners that don't know, is this hologram AI, you know, like a Google Home or an Alexa companion that but is also a cartoon teenage girl. And she's marketed as a replacement girlfriend. She'll turn on the lights in your home. She'll, you know, control the temperature, but she'll also send you emotional text messages and is, yeah, this girlfriend experience. She came out a few years ago. What's been really interesting is, yes, Japanese men have bought her, bought the gate box. They've married her. The company have also commercialized it and they've put gate box in shopping malls. And I think what's interesting now is the gate box, the software. I don't know if you read about this. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. So, and the software has, yeah, whatever. It's like neat. It's due for an upgrade. And all, all these people are now like, oh, where has, where has my, girlfriend gone like it's like a real life version of like her the movie and so I think we're seeing it play out in real time being like no this definitely isn't the answer you know it has provided a salve 
for some people for a few years, but it's not the rip and replace that I think that company, potentially the culture, believed that technology could be. And so it's kind of beautiful that it's happened in this little short window of time in a way. We're going, oh, well, actually the girlfriend experience, the software like runs out and you need to upgrade it or you know, buy a new dress, cartoon dress, digital projection. So no <laughs> is the short answer. But I do think I think we're going to see people testing the limits of that. Gatebox is a great example, but in more Western cultures as well. Um, did you read about the the text message, the guy that passed away and then they took five years' worth of his text oh, messages yeah, and turned yeah. him into a bot yeah. and then yeah, you could yeah, text yeah. him and now it's available, you can text him. Like those sorts of things we're seeing. How much does this provide a stand-in for intimacy and not? I think the really clever technologies kind of are just guiding us towards being better intimate human beings anyway. But that was another one where I was like, oh, this is really interesting. You can text this person even though they've passed away and they'll respond to you as if they were still alive and mm, how much yeah, I mean, that- there's a whole bunch of ethical stuff sitting under there. <laughs> right. How much does that, um, you know, for some people who had lost their friend were like this is a way to process the grief and others, you know, were horrified. Um, and it is, it brings up all these things that we haven't yet learned or know what the ethical way is or, you know, the same thing with is it cheating, you know, what is online and we're just catching up to like this concept of like emotional cheating online now or revenge porn, things that we just never had before that we have to grapple with as a society and that we have to think culturally about but also like legally, like what are the ramifications here. So... I could go off because I just like went off on a ramble then. I don't know where I went to in my brain. No, I no. Need, no. <laughs> uh, my my disc is full in my brain. My my laptop also just popped up and said my disc is full. So okay. technology on the human and <laughs> laptop <laughs> and level is very front. But, yeah, I think, I think what you're saying there really links back to the idea that we all need different solutions. So. Mm. Yeah, you could you could argue that it's having the the diverse range of solutions is is the more important thing than trying to ascribe like this is good, this is bad. Yes, but I think there also has to come with that an awareness of what is motivating what we're doing here. <laughs> so much is loneliness. I feel like yeah, yeah. With the with the when we think about that emotional intimacy dimension, I feel like so much of it is about connection, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Intellectual intimacy is about curiosity. Physical intimacy is about usually about pleasure. Mm. You know? So how are we trying to replace connection, intimate connection, which I just think it's so fraught. It's the most fraught one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a hard one to know how you solve for that because that's very much a, much a personal problem, right? Like it's it's hard to solve for that at sort of a mass market level Mm. have you seen ghostbot did you look into ghostbot at all so that's you know arguably some people go what a relief i i need ghostbot right away and ghostbot is you know if you're on a dating app and it turns to that point where you're trying to get out of the conversation and you know in this instance the examples they use if you go on the ghostbot site are basically annoying guys that don't want to go away um And you outsource it to GoSpot, which finds a way to leave the conversation in a really polite way. But the emotional labour 
that you would typically have to do, gone. <laughs> just give them the number, boom, 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 and they find a way to use the language. It's a bot, uses the language in a way that still sounds like you but is like a polite exit but instead of carrying that. So some people would be like, yes, amazing, that makes my life so much better. Other people would be like, well, what about if you've never learned how to exit conversations. Isn't this a good way to do it, to learn through, you know, early dating experiences that the skills needed to get out of situations like that instead of outsourcing it to technology? Mm. Where my mind goes is that you would hope you could invent some type of technology that would help men understand not to be annoying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a bot against a bot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Let's fix the person perpetrating the behavior as opposed to the person having to respond to it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I thought that we could finish up talking a bit about sex tech school. Oh, cool. And yeah. And what sex tech school actually is, what you do there, what type of technologies you've been working with. Great. Yeah. So apart from people asking me, am I normal? (laughs) The second question that people would contact me with is, how do I get started in sex tech? I've got this idea, or maybe I've got an existing business or a prototype, or I just want to be involved in this industry. This, you know, they're like me, they're like, oh, my career right now is just not interesting me. I want to move into sex tech. And so sex tech school is designed a six-week program to help you get started in sex tech and take your business or an idea and bring it to life. And so we've had 120 people through the program in the last couple of years, i say last year and a bit actually, and people coming from all walks of life and all ages. We've had technologists, we've had sex therapists, creatives, sexologists, all creating different work and we take them through this process of industry knowledge, so just very deep industry knowledge and network stuff that you could really, you can't really Google it, business models, branding for the space, which is super specific, and community engagement. And you go through that program with an idea in mind and out the other end, you you know, you're presenting a project. Some people have made apps. Some people, we've got a great sexting app that's gone on to go into an accelerator program and get funding. Some people are designing teledildonics. The most recent cohort, which just finished last week, then one guy designed this amazing sex machine that's like the evolution of teledildonics where you can feel, you know, you can use different toys but also feel like it mimics the different experiences that different toys are, are having. That's a really butchered explanation for it. Erotic lingerie for lingerie that, you know, maybe you're very sensitive and you don't want to use a really full-on vibrated directly on your skin. I've also had jewellery designed. You know, there's all sorts of things as well as the more techie side of the house where we're designing prosthetics and um, V-Dom was was the founder which went through sex tech school a year ago. So some really interesting innovations coming out of it, super early stage and the, the idea is to just sort of form this community to also support you through it because sex tech can be a really lonely, isolated industry if you don't know people in it and you're encountering all the same challenges, whether that's being taken off social media, which we get taken off like four times a year, to trying to open bank accounts, to thinking through how you might engage with the consumer if you can't actually reach them on social media. So we provide all that and I would just say that community 
is has been amazing and has inspired me to go on and start thinking about how do we give these people more access to money? If they've got the knowledge now and they're going out and creating these businesses, the next thing they need, if the business model is sound, is capital. And so that's the next project is out of that we have the Future of Sex Syndicate, which is a equity crowdfunding platform that we launched in eight weeks' time and that will list deals and then you can, you know, support your favourite founders in sex tech and contribute and earn carry and invest in these sex tech businesses that typically it's real tough to, to be sitting in front of investors that, you know, don't really want to talk about sex or don't really get it. So mm-hmm. that's the, the next evolution of Sex Tech School. Very cool. And I last question I wanted to ask you was what technologies are you most interested in or excited about or think have the most potential? Yeah, I I still am like stuck on on 2022. You know, the internet I think is really interesting as in terms of the, the way that we're using it and the way we can use it for sex education. If you haven't been can't tell throughout this interview, I'm really passionate about sex education as like the root cause of so much trauma and so much, so much misinformation around like how we have great relationships with one another. So for me, I guess my passion is more sex education and thinking about how do we deliver that in a really compelling way. The internet still seems like the most sound option. Of course, there's like VR programs that I've seen that look really interesting, but I think for me, I'm always thinking about how can I reach the most people? How can I get to the people that need to be reached? That's why I started a podcast. That's why, you know, all the online school, I'm less concerned with the crazy technology and more concerned with mm. the sexuality bucket and like yeah. yeah, what's the big thing we could solve there. Yeah, well, that's where we need the solving, right? <laughs> yeah, that's where we should start, not the cool tech. It's the basic interpersonal stuff. Yeah, yeah, the human side, for sure. Thanks for listening to The Philosophy of Sex, and a huge thank you to Bryony Cole. You can head to the show notes for more information about Bryony, the Future of Sex podcast, and Sex Tech School. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond, Thanks to Zoltan Fetcho for editing the episode and writing the music. If you like what you're hearing or have a question, please leave us a review or email us at info at becoming.me. Becoming is spelt with a U. Don't forget to subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.